0: It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Wednesday, November 2nd. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. A clamoring of voices claiming voter fraud concerns in Northern California have other groups alleging the outcry is actually a thinly veiled voter intimidation tactic. The California Report heads to Shasta and Placer counties to investigate so-called voter integrity groups. Then we'll look at your local news and weather before a sneak peek at upcoming Victorian Christmas in this week's Nevada City Chamber Report. And it's still Halloween week, so in the spirit of the season, KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller gives us a history lesson on a lesser-known witch trial.
1: This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez at NPR West in Culver City. Charging documents filed by the San Francisco District Attorney's Office are revealing new details about the man who allegedly attacked House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi, early Friday morning at the Pelosi San Francisco residence. Prosecutors say David DePap, an ardent believer in far right conspiracy theories, claimed he was on a suicide mission with plans to kidnap Speaker Pelosi. He told police that he knew Pelosi was second in line to the presidency and, quote, we've got to take them all out. San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins filed a protective order to keep DePap away from the Pelosi's.
2: This was not a a random residential burglary. Um, He specifically sought out their home. He sought out the Speaker.
1: And DePap allegedly also planned to target other state and federal elected officials and a Bay Area professor. DePap entered a not guilty plea yesterday and is due back in court on Friday. And by the way, the Washington Post was the first to report that there are Capitol Police cameras around the Pelosi residence with live feeds. But none of them were being monitored when the residence was broken into. Earlier this week, we told you about voter fraud concerns among some people in Northern California's Shasta County. We return to Shasta County and hear about so-called voter integrity groups. The members of the groups claim they're looking to root out fraud, but are such efforts really about voter intimidation? Eric Newman of Jefferson Public Radio reports. Kathy Darling-Allen first heard about the door
3: knockers in late September. The Shasta County clerk says she got reports of three residents' homes being visited in the small town of Anderson and one in Redding.
4: Two people came to their front door, knocked on their door wearing yellow kind of reflective vests and uh, IDs around their neck that say voter task force, and they're pretty aggressively questioning the people who live there.
3: She says the handful of residents felt singled out and targeted by the voter groups.
4: This is not a situation where the folks were going door to door. They drove to their their homes, got out of the car right in front of their homes, that kind of thing.
3: Darling Allen says the targeted door knocking happening in Shasta County amounts to voter intimidation and could be illegal under California election laws. She reported the incidents to state and federal authorities. Similar so-called voter integrity groups have been active just north of here in southern Oregon. At least some of these actions were inspired by national activists. One is Doug Frank, a conspiracy theorist who has been traveling the country promoting the idea that there is widespread fraud occurring in elections across the U.S.
4: My specialty is coaching local groups on finding real, actionable election fraud. Fraud they can take to their sheriffs, their election officials and local courts.
3: Frank visited Shasta County in mid September before County Clerk Kathy Darling Allen heard about the door knocking. He wore his trademark American flag bow tie and gave a presentation to the Shasta County Board of Supervisors. Frank says he uses election records and census data to look for irregularities in voting records. Then he compiles local addresses for canvassers to check for voter
4: fraud. The local citizens will be bringing you hundreds of cases of undeniable
1: fraud.
3: There's no evidence to support Frank's accusations that local elections were stolen. And the analysis behind his conclusions is flawed, says Justin Grimmer, a political science professor at Stanford. There's no truth to Doug Frank's claims. Grimmer has written several papers about Frank's methodology. He says it's based on a mathematical analysis of voting numbers that will, in essence, always suggest that there's been manipulation, whether those numbers come from Shasta or any other election. It's just that he's chosen a statistical method that will always give a a particular value. And he's decided to interpret that as evidence of fraud when really it's not evidence of much of anything. Despite these voter integrity groups looking for fraud in the 2020 election, Grimmer says this is also meant to discredit future campaigns. I think a lot of the work that he's doing now, including talking regularly with election officials throughout the country and mobilizing these local activists, is to lay the groundwork for objections to 2022. Ryan Ronco is the clerk of Placer County, east of Sacramento, another place Doug Frank focused on to recruit residents. He says if they're concerned, residents should come to his office to see how Placer County protects the vote. I just think that it's a shame if
1: people feel that the election is rigged, without coming into their local office to at least ask the questions.
3: When residents do that, he says, they generally leave satisfied that their local election is being run safely. Ronco says right now it's on every California registrar to increase their transparency.
1: So that we can be able to begin this process of allowing people who feel disenfranchised or disengaged from the process right now back in so that their voices can be heard.
3: Voters in California can call their local clerk's office to arrange a tour. They can also be an observer on Election Day. For the California Report, I'm Eric Newman.
1: Eric's story is part of a project from the California Newsroom. That's a collaboration of California's public radio stations, NPR, and the website CalMatters. Stanford officials say they're reviewing safety procedures after a man posing as a student managed to live in several dorms on campus for almost a year. William Curry, who reportedly graduated from high school in Alabama last year, was finally escorted off campus last week.
2: Curry was not only maintaining a stable relationship with a Stanford student, but he was also actively a part of several friend groups. You know, he was DMing people about homework assignments. He, at times... Uh, even showed up to classes in person, according to reports from students. What's really remarkable is the fact that he was genuinely a part of this campus,
1: and people genuinely felt that they knew him. That's Theo Baker, who writes for the Stanford Daily.
2: So motivation is the question everyone's asking right now. Why would somebody want to do this? And the answer is, we don't really know. Curry himself was elusive uh, with his answers. We confronted him several times um, directly, and his motivation each time was a little bit different. At one point, he claimed essentially that he just wanted to get the Stanford experience.
1: And Theo Baker says Curry was thrown off campus several times by security but kept coming back. You can read Baker's reporting at stanforddaily.com.
2: Support for the California report comes from Paint Care. Now, with 834 drop off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Stanford Healthcare alerting listeners to the critical blood shortage in the area. Now's the time to donate blood and make a difference. StanfordBloodCenter.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel FALCOR-2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration on the web at SchmidtOcean.org.
1: And that is this edition of the California Report for Wednesday, November 2nd. I'm your host, Saul Gonzalez at NPR West. Thanks so much for
0: listening. Let's take a look at today's local news. Roughly 2,500 Comcast Cable Xfinity customers have been without Internet service in the Grass Valley and surrounding regions since this morning. The unplanned outages were experienced by customers beginning around 7:10 a.m., Service was initially due to be restored by 8.20 a.m., before being pushed back to 2.15 p.m., and eventually to a 7 p.m. estimated time of restoration, according to Xfinity's online status center. This from the Union of Grass Valley. Turning our attention to your forecast from the National Weather Service, just when we were starting to forget what rain looked like, the start of November has ushered in actual fall weather, Expect cold morning lows and possible morning frost Thursday and Friday, this week. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight mostly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms before 8 p.m. with a low around 28, patchy frost after 11 p.m., and patchy fog between 1 and 2 a.m., a 50% chance of precipitation. Thursday, widespread frost before 10 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 52. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, snow showers are likely mainly before 8 p.m. with a low around 11, a 60% chance of precipitation. Thursday, mostly cloudy through mid-morning with a high near 34. The National Weather Service has issued a winter weather advisory for the Tahoe-Truckee region, in effect until 8 p.m. this evening. Possible snow showers with additional snow accumulations up to 3 inches. Winds gusting up to 35 miles per hour may make travel very difficult. Be aware of hazardous conditions while driving and be prepared for sudden changes in visibility. The National Weather Service recommends carrying chains and an emergency supply kit while traveling. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, partly cloudy with a chance of showers and thunderstorms before 10 p.m. and a low around 41, a 40% chance of precipitation. Thursday, sunny with a high near 61. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. As we plunge headlong into the holiday season, KVMR's Felton Pruitt lets us in on what to expect from downtown Nevada City. What events are just around the corner? Find out in today's Chamber Report.
5: We're talking with Stuart Baker. He's the director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. And Stuart, there's some new businesses opening in Nevada City. Why don't you fill us in on all that?
4: Definitely, Felton. One of a really great find that has been so popular since it's opened is the Communal Cafe, and that's at the corner of Broad and Pine Street. And it's filled with art, which is amazing, that changes every few weeks. And they have food, and they have a great menu that's expanding for lunch, dinner, and breakfast. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a gem of a spot. The place on Pine Street is across the street on Pine, where formerly the South Pine Cafe was. And we're actually having a ribbon cutting for them next Friday at two p.m. on the I believe that's the eleventh of November. And we're excited to see that space filled again. And then Fur Traders is also under new ownership, and uh, they've totally remodeled the store, and uh, it looks wonderful. They've really taken it back to a really classic look, and it's very light and spacious. So those are, uh, those are new businesses that we have in downtown right now.
5: Always nice to see our city revamping and growing again.
4: Yes, absolutely. And the calls we get at the Chamber these days are all about fall colors, and we're curious to see how they'll be after all this rain we're getting right now, and uh, hopefully they'll still be intact, because they were absolutely gorgeous for Halloween, which was also a stunning event for us this year. We had uh, the Halloween Spooktacular, where we had kids from three to five, just really, uh, it was an amazing turnout, and then, of course, nighttime was, the usual busyness. So that'll be a, a new tradition the afternoon, trick-or-treat.
5: Has there been any new word, new new ideas about the courthouse?
4: The courthouse is hanging on what will be decided by the legislature in January for budgeting. So if there's money in the budget for uh, the new courthouse, then it's on its track. And within five years, we should see a new courthouse built somewhere in or directly around Nevada City, or if it's not in the budget, then we may end up having the courthouse for quite a bit longer, so uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in january
5: and of course, coming up next month it'll be victorian Christmas
4: yes, and that's what we're gearing up for right now we're going to be having the tree in Robinson plaza and the plan is for that to get up by Thanksgiving so people can start off the holiday season in the festive mood. And, of course, all the greenery will be going up around that same time, too. And uh, Victorian Christmas is, as you know, our premier event. And it's going to be held on Sundays, December 4th, 11th, and 18th from 1.30 to 6. And on Wednesdays, the 7th and the 14th from 5 to 9 p.m. And then uh, lastly, on the 24th of November at 8.30 a.m. at the uh, NU High School, there's going to be the Turkey Trot Run and Walk. So uh, look for that. That'll be something that happens then on Thanksgiving week. It's normally a quiet time in town. People are all gearing up for the holidays, but it's still wonderful to walk. Hopefully we'll have some beautiful fall colors still happening, and we'll uh, look forward to seeing you uh,
5: soon. So if people want to get more information about events in downtown Nevada City, give them the website and uh, maybe a phone number to call.
4: Absolutely. It's www.NevadaCityChamber.com at 530-265-2692.
5: Thanks a lot. That's Stuart Baker. He's the director of the Nevada City Chamber of Commerce. We'll be talking with you next month.
4: Great. Thanks, Felton.
0: In the spirit of Halloween, KVMR science correspondent Al Stoller looks back, several hundred years, to a series of witch trials in Russia. Al hears the true tale from Forrest Holden in the History Department at the University of Michigan. What was going on in the Salem Witch Trials?
2: The Salem Witch Trials at the end of the 17th century actually are quite late in the history of witch trials. Some people, I think, have an idea that witch trials really were a phenomenon of medieval Europe, but really they're a phenomenon of early modern Europe. They really don't get going until the 15th century, and they sort of take on a life of their own in the 16th century with the Reformation.
6: Reformation. That was the Reformation, the reformation of the church, from Catholicism being the the main church to a lot of Protestant denominations.
2: And along with this, you know, with Protestant culture comes a kind of a dislike of ceremony and an idea that we should kind of have a a simpler, more austere, more reasonable way of understanding God, which plays into witch trials in various ways. In the late 17th century, really there's a lot of skepticism about witchcraft and magic. So by the time we get to Salem, north of Boston, colonial North America, there's a lot of skepticism about witchcraft all over Europe, and there's a kind of suspended legal status that the Massachusetts colony is in at the time of the trials that kind of fed into this huge case snowballing. The news of this spread around, and it actually spurred a kind of even further, you know, skepticism about witchcraft in a sense that something needs to be done to make sure that these uh, legal processes, which are, you know, increasingly seen as based on insatisfactory standards of evidence, be changed. Really, there's very few witch trials in Europe after the late 17th century after Salem. There are some exceptions, which we'll get into, but for the most part, witch trials are kind of over by about 1700.
6: The late 1600s saw the beginning of the Enlightenment, the beginning of the Age of Reason.
2: You know, there's so many different people making so many different kinds of claims about what they know about God, about nature, about the universe. Modern science really comes out of that context, so a lot of people are looking for a language and a way to talk about truth that can be confirmed by others, that, you know, can be confirmed by evidence.
6: Just to give us a little bit of background, where does the Russian Orthodox Church stand in relation to the other European churches?
2: It is kind of in a special place because the Orthodox Church split off from the Catholic Church already in the medieval period. For the most part, you're dealing with religious forms that are not in dialogue with this kind of skepticism and theological rationalism that's associated with Protestantism. Which trials really get going in Russia in the 1600s, in the 17th century? This is really because they have a bureaucracy that's able to carry out these prosecutions for the first time. Which trials are really tied to the rise of bureaucracy? You You need actual personnel to send out to these villages to arrest people and interrogate them and so on. But Russia doesn't have what we would now call scientists. They're there to some extent, but they have a pretty marginal place. 1769, some villagers in a a very small village northeast of Moscow were arrested and accused of demonic possession. Demonic possession is a kind of subset of witchcraft accusation. Some witchcraft accusations might be, he cursed my cow and my cow died. But some witchcraft accusations would be, somebody invoked a demon and that demon is inhabiting my person. And that is causing me suffering or some kind of irrational or violent behavior. Demonic possession, it was what was at stake at Salem as well. Eventually, one of the accusers produced a moth, I'm sorry, not a moth, a winged worm is what they call it. So once this physical evidence of the worm was produced, the church kind of started to take these accusations more seriously, they arrested the people who were accused of witchcraft and demonic possession, interrogated them and Torture is a you know a major part of these kinds of interrogations. So they're sort of coerced into confessing to you know these accusations of demonic possession. The story kind of gets interesting when the secular authorities jump in and uh, accuse the church of superstition. The Senate, which is the secular part of the government, wrote to the church that their case reflected, quote, inveterate superstition in the form of thoughtlessness among many people especially among the simple folk who believe in curses through sorcery combined with obvious deceit on the part of those who, either out of spite or for their own profit, traffic in this superstition. So we really see the secular authorities invoking this language of the Enlightenment to kind of slap down the church, believing that something that was impossible was possible. But the Senate also had to provide some explanation for what happened. You know, why are all these villagers making these accusations? They looked at the people who were making these accusations about demonic possession, which were mostly women. And in interviewing everybody, they found that there were situations involving women's sexual jealousy at the core of all of these. This is the sort of Senate's impression from the interviews. In one case, one of the peasant women had been spurned by a suitor. Another was involved in a love triangle with a man and one of the people that she had accused. And so from the secular government's point of view, if magic or witchcraft was not a satisfactory explanation, you know, something that could explain irrational behavior, then women's sexual jealousy becomes sort of alternate explanation that they find plausible. From a certain perspective, it's a lot of women making accusations against people with power over them. A lot of the victims of demonic possession, you know, the accusers who believe themselves to be possessed, are, you know, servant women, um, people with not a lot of power. And they get to speak truth to power when they're possessed by a demon. You know, they get to swear. They get to tell their masters that they don't care what they think. It's kind of a strange irony that in rejecting the supernatural explanation and replacing it with this gendered explanation, whatever outlet these peasant women had to express their own dissatisfaction and, you know, conflicting desires in this very misogynistic world was actually kind of taken away from them. The Senate had the women in question punished. I think that they were tortured and sent to prisons or monasteries. The accused, you know, who were originally arrested by the church, the secular government paid to send them back to their village and set up their lives again.
6: Foss does history go forward? Is there progress? Or are we doomed to go around and around?
2: (laughs) Very large question. I don't think I have a satisfactory answer to that. What something like this opens up is an interesting way for us to be critical about our own claims to rationality and how we understand certain things to be true or not true.
6: Forrest, it's been really good talking with you. Thank you very much.
2: Absolutely. This was really fun.
6: I've been speaking with Forrest Holden, PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Michigan. I'd like to extend my thanks to Dale Jacobson for introducing me to Forrest. For KVMR, I'm Al Stoller.
0: That's our newscast for this Wednesday, November 2nd. Visit us online at kvmr.org and on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Nevada City Live 2022. Presenting Julie Gobert and the Hefferbells, Thursday, November 3rd. Golden Shoulders with the Moore Brothers. Friday, November 4th. Also, Boku Chapeau. Saturday, November 5th. Tickets and information, paulemerymusic.com and Hansen Brothers Enterprises, since 1953, offering bulk and bagged soils, amendments, and fertilizers for gardening needs. Also excavation, paving, underground utilities, and site work services for public, private, and commercial enterprises. GoHBE.com The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director, Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Thursday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.